True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. to the outer suburb of Melton, about 35 kilometres or 22 miles west of Melbourne, Australia. Actually, it's a bit more than a suburb having a population of around 70,000. But anyway, in 2005, there would be a crime committed that would shock the community, but also raise discussions on workplace safety. First off, I'd like to thank everyone who subscribed to my new YouTube channel, I'm starting to get the hang of it now and I do plan to add a few more features so please check it out and share. Now tonight I've got references from the Herald Sun, the Sydney Morning Herald, lawyersconveyancing.com.au, billiongraves.com and the abc.net.au. Of course I've got a mix of court records. In fact, quite a lot of this has come from court records. Okay, so we go to Melton, Victoria tonight. This case is another one of those senseless crimes perpetrated by someone with no prior convictions who kept his perversions to himself and online until one day he acted them out in real life. It's the case of the rape and murder of Laurel Mary Macon. Now, Laurel was born on the 30th of January 1957 to Shirley and David O'Keefe and christened at the Sacred Heart Church in St Kilda. David and Shirley had met at St Kilda Town Hall on a dance night in 1955. How it was back then, no swiping left or right. Laurel was the eldest of five children and she was the loving and supportive mother of two children, Samantha and John. She worked as a sales consultant at Elders Real Estate in Melton and enjoyed aerobics and netball. She was also a mad supporter of the St Kilda Football Club. Samantha Macon, Laurel's daughter, described her mother as her mentor and her best friend who supported her and her brother John with unconditional love and she said her mum lived for her children. Laurel's sister, Lisa Preston, said Laurel was a beautiful person that she could have a good laugh with, have fun shopping with, who she enjoyed watching films, football and having dinner with. Laurel's brother, Michael O'Keefe, said Laurel was his best friend. Terry Macon was Laurel's husband. Now, they'd met in 1977 on a train while Terry went to his apprenticeship and Laurel to St Aloysius College in North Melbourne. As I said before, they had two children, Samantha and John. So, Laurel had been working at the Elders Real Estate in Melbourne since 2000. She started there on the reception desk, moved up to be in charge of the rentals, then studied, sat and obtained her real estate licence and was now able to deal with sales. Her cousin Mandy said she really wanted to prove herself. This career progression caused a bit of tension between her husband Terry and herself, Terry being a refueler at Tullamarine Airport. Laurel was becoming more independent 
especially financially independent, and her career was blossoming. Laurel and Terry had an investment unit, so Terry moved into that while they ended up separating. Laurel had started seeing someone else, and Terry found out. As you can imagine, this really causes stress when people try to move on in their lives and the others can't accept it. So let's get some background on the perpetrator in this case. It's Shei Liu. Shei Liu was born in China on September 1970. His parents were teachers, but had both retired by 2005. Liu had two younger brothers, one year and five years younger than him, who also reside in China. They work for government departments in the area of immigration and trade, respectively. Liu had a distant relationship with his father, who'd been an alcoholic with a capacity for aggression, but he had a close relationship with his mother. Liu completed two years of secondary education in the area of Guangzhou in the Fujian province of China. In January 1987, at the age of 16, he came to Western Australia on a student visa. He attended an international college in Perth, which had a business orientation for about a year. During this period, Liu learnt English, and ultimately, in 1989, he completed Year 12 at a Catholic college in Perth. Liu then attended a TAFE institution in Perth, which is Technical and Further Education, with the ambition of becoming a mechanical engineer. He didn't like the practical aspects of the course, and then he left after just one year of that. Liu got an extension of his student visa by the Australian government after the incident in Tiananmen Square, and in about 1997, he became an Australian citizen. Meanwhile, in 1991, Liu commenced working as a kitchen hand in Perth restaurants, now, that's an occupation he didn't find intellectually stimulating. You see, he wasn't that stupid. He was quite a smart guy. He then spent some five years driving a delivery van for a Perth bakery called Minas. At one stage, Liu attempted a computer engineering course for one semester. Finally, Liu worked as a security guard for the city of Perth. Now, Liu was an instructor in the martial art of Ninju Kaijitsu. Now, while living in Perth, Liu formed a relationship with Marie Swan and they had a daughter who was born in 1999. Liu established his own business, which essentially involved importing porcelain lamps and clothing from China. In 2003, after his relationship broke down, Liu decided to relocate to Melbourne, leaving Marie and his daughter. But when he transferred the business to Melbourne, it went broke. Now, Liu called his daughter every day. And as I said, Liu wasn't stupid. He could speak Mandarin, Cantonese and his own dialect, plus English. It was said by his friends and workmates that he was a hard worker, honest and polite, helpful and compassionate. So what the fuck happened? Now, before we get to the day of September 15, 2005, several months earlier in June 2005, Liu calls up Elder's Real Estate and meets with Laurel for the purpose of inspecting a house. Now, Laurel is blonde and just five foot two, and Lou admitted to his ex, Marie Swan, that she reminded him of her. I mean, that's a bit creepy, isn't it? Whether or not the inspection was genuine, 
or if Lou had been stalking Lorel, we'll probably never know. Anyway, now we get to September 15, 2005. Lorel left to go to work at approximately 8.15am. She had a brief telephone conversation with her daughter Samantha at 11.40am. She had an appointment to show a two-storey house at 30 Milverton Street, Melton at 12.15pm. This was a vacant house and it was advertised for sale. Lou had four mobile phones at the time, but he chose to call Lorel and make this appointment by using a public phone box. He also parked his car at Hannah Watts Park. Now that's a good two kilometres or 25 minute walk away. Now it can't be confirmed, but Lou may have taken a roll of clear packing tape and black garbage bags with him to the property. Lou had debts of $60,000 at the time, so he was in no financial state to be buying a house. So Laurel meets Lou at Milverton Street and they enter the property. As you can imagine with any inspection, Laurel probably shows him around the ground floor first and then they go upstairs. Now, I just want to put a little trigger warning here if you may find the depiction of the attack uncomfortable. Just fast forward about a minute. Trigger warning over. It's here in the upstairs bathroom that Lou attacks Laurel. Laurel fights for her life, but she's only five foot two, and Lou is a fit martial arts expert. From bloodstains and blood splatter, Laurel put up a fight. Lou beats Laurel around the head and face area before using packing tape to gag her. He then strips her, bends her over the bath and proceeds to rape her. However, he seems to not have been able to maintain his erection. He then strangles Laurel and leaves her face down in the bath, partially covering her with black plastic bags. Lou then cleaned up in the bathroom area. This included washing blood from Laurel's body, using the bath taps. He then left the property, driving Laurel's Blue Holden Commodore to the Melton Valley Golf Course near where he'd originally parked his car at Hannah Watts Park. Timothy Farnham was the director of Elders Real Estate Melton. Between 4 and 4.30pm, Russell Parker notified Farnham that the keys to a property in Milverton Street were missing and Laurel had not been seen for some time. Timothy checked her diary and observed that there was an entry for that day, 12.15, 30 Milverton Street. He went to some other properties to see if she was there and arrived at the Milverton Street property at approximately 7pm. After receiving a call to go to the house, police obtained a key from the owner of the property. Again, I'd just like to give a trigger warning for those that may not want to hear the details of what the police would find. So just fast forward a minute. They found Laurel's body in the upstairs bathroom partially covered with a plastic bag. They checked for signs of life and formed the opinion that she was dead. Laurel was naked from the waist down and her top was lifted up exposing her breasts. She'd been gagged with clear packing tape. Injuries included minor bruising and abrasions to the left and right cheek and the left side of the nose, as well as a hemorrhage on the inner surface of the upper lip, all were attributable to blunt trauma. Bruising and abrasions beneath the chin and on the right side of the neck were consistent with manual neck compression. 
whilst petechial hemorrhaging around the facial skin, eyes and inside the lower lip were indicative of asphyxia. Her mobile phone, keys and car were also missing. Now, earlier in the day, Marie Swan, Lou's ex, received a telephone call from him at approximately 12.15pm Perth time or 2.15pm Melbourne time. Now, I have seen this reported as 4.15pm Melbourne time as well. He stated that he'd done something and couldn't change it. When she asked him what he'd done, he responded that he couldn't tell her, but he said that she should change their daughter's name. Now, he also suggested that she take their daughter away, perhaps overseas. Later that day, at approximately 5.15pm Perth time or 7.15pm Melbourne time, she received another call from him saying that he'd done something terrible, but he wouldn't elaborate. He spoke of a real estate agent who, he said, was just like her and told her that she said something to me. I don't know what it was, but I snapped and I was just so angry. It was uncontrollable anger. I was so angry, I don't remember what it was. He then said, I was choking her and that he ran out of the house. Now, Marie and Lou discussed the options available to him namely either confess or flee. After his conversation with Marie Swan, she called her former husband in Victoria. When she later received another phone call from Lou, she told him to go to the police and that she had to go to them as well. Now, Lou, he also rang his mother in China and told her what he'd done. So luckily, Marie has now given the police a huge break by naming Lou as a suspect. One of the crime scene investigators, Senior Constable Darren Watson, went to the Melton Valley Golf Course on the 16th of September where Laurel's Holden Commodore was discovered and also that morning conducted a more detailed search of the Milverton Street property. He observed bloodstains on the carpet at the top of the stairs. Now, no blood was found in the bathroom itself. It had been cleaned up, but he found a roller tape on a table in the house. One fingerprint, which would end up belonging to Lou, was found on the bath. Now, this indicated that he tried to wipe the scene clean before leaving, but he missed a bit. Senior Constable Travis Baxter went to a car park in Flinders Lane where Lou's car, a black Ford sedan, had been located. He searched that vehicle and three bins close by. In one of the bins, he found the set of keys belonging to the Milverton Street property. Detective Senior Constable Robert Nazaratian also attended the car park and inspected the vehicle. In one of the bins, he found a plastic bag containing blue denim jeans, a white shirt, a grey t-shirt, a pair of white socks and some white undies. There was also an express telegraph property guide. Now that belonged to Laurel and this was found in Lou's car. Also in the bin was a white Target bag containing a light-coloured jumper with a zip on the neck, clear packing tape and a notepad. After forensic testing, indentations revealed that a page of the notepad that had been removed had a number of phone numbers and names written on it of persons who had attended Elders Real Estate in Melton in June or July 2005. Now remember, that's when Lou first contacted Laurel. 
Now, on the 16th of September, police located and arrested Lou before he could skip the country. The way they did this was quite interesting. Now, we know how Lou had called his ex-Marie, who was living in Perth, and told her that he'd done something bad, something that couldn't be undone. Well, as I said, she contacted a friend in Melbourne asking if anything bad had happened that day. The friend told Marie that a real estate agent had been murdered. Marie then told her friend all the details that she had from those phone calls Lou had made to her and asked her friend to ring Crime Stoppers to pass on the information. Now, once investigators found out about Lou, they contacted Marie and asked her to call Lou and lure him to a bank on the premise that she needed him to transfer money for his daughter before he fled back to China. Lou had called his mother and told her he was coming back to China on a flight that afternoon. As Lou made his way to the bank, police were tracking his mobile phone and they were able to arrest him on arrival. So Lou was examined by Dr. Helen Parker, who observed some minor injuries to his hands, arms and legs, which were consistent with the struggle with Laurel. When asked why he attacked Laurel, he said, When I get angry, I lose control. When asked if Laurel said or did anything to make him angry, Lou responded, No, honestly, she was a very nice lady. Asked, therefore, why he killed her, he responded, I couldn't explain why I did it. It could be a thing I was thinking. I was thinking about my financial situation. I get frustrated. It could be a lot of things. I don't think it could be only a single reason. It could be a combination of of the lot. When searching his house, the police located a videotape of an internet site depicting a blonde female performing explicit sexual acts upon herself together with further video footage of Lou having sex at his Sydenham unit with a woman who apparently was a sex worker. Additionally, a computer hard drive seized from that address contained a plethora of sexual images downloaded from various sites, which may generally be described as pornographic. There were 10 downloaded video clips of interest to investigators. Nine of them were downloaded on the 14th of September. That's the day before this happened. And one was downloaded at an earlier date, the 10th of September. In eight of the 10 clips, the women appear to be gagged. Also on his computer were images with scenes of couples having sex inside a bathroom and bathtub. The hard drive also contained emails indicating Lou had met Laurel about two and a half months before her death to inspect a house and had contact with another elder's real estate agent, Julie May. Luckily, she'd never met Lou, but had received an inquiry from him in relation to another property at an earlier date. Then there was a Jennifer Petkoff. She was a close friend of Lou's. She told police at least a few months before his arrest, Lou phoned her and said he wanted to move in with a real estate agent. Now what she said, she said that he spoke about an older woman who wanted him to move into her nice house and that she was an estate agent. Now this is a bit crazy. I I think this was part of some sort of fantasy that was going on in his head. Now, prosecutors have to work out if this rape and murder 
were premeditated or not. At least they have to go to court with with some sort of strategy. Was this premeditated or not? Now, clearly, Lou had no money to be buying houses. So that's one thing. I mean, did he organise the house viewing just to get Laurel alone? Also, there's the matter of the packing tape and these black plastic bags. Now, did he bring them with him or were they at the property? Now, the clear packing tape apparently was at the property, or at least one roll of it, but the owner said it was downstairs, not upstairs. So Lou taking it upstairs, that actually does show premeditation, even if investigators, like I said, couldn't prove he took it to the scene. Now, it couldn't be determined if the black plastic bags had been brought to the site or if they were already there. Most people, you know, have garbage bags under the sink or whatever. Now, once in court, Lou tried to play down all aspects of what he'd done. He tried to blame Laurel for setting him off and making him angry and only then did he decide to rape her, strangle her and leave her for dead. He tried to make out He thought she was still alive when he left. So he's trying to say, I didn't go there planning to do this. I got set off by her. So it's not premeditated. Now, in his interview with a psychologist, Mr. Ian Joblin, Joblin noticed during my interview with him, he actually contradicted himself. At one point, indicating that he choked her first and then had sex. On another occasion, he indicated that he had sex first and then he choked her. In relation to the pornography found on the internet, now it was the Crown's submission that Lou planned to act out his sexual activities that he'd viewed the previous evening. It was pointed out that Laurel was gagged, her lower clothing removed, and her upper garments pulled up, exposing her breasts. Moreover, it was asserted that the women involved in these videos they saw were like Laurel, blonde, and older than Lou. Also, it was found that in the days prior to the attack on Laurel, a submissive pornographic site was accessed and an image of a female being held underwater was downloaded onto his hard drive. Now, the judge would remark, The exact sequence and nature of your attack upon Miss Macon will never be precisely known. In my view, your own version of events to police and to your former partner, Ms. Marie Swan, is laced with a mixture of lies, half-truths and self-serving statements. Your claims of a spontaneous attempt at rape and a lack of any murderous intent when you caused Miss Macon's death were both rejected by the jury. So, Lou would be found guilty on both the rape charge and the murder charge. On the rape charge, he was sentenced to be in prison for 10 years. On the murder charge, he was sentenced to 22 years. Further, it was directed that five years of the rape conviction be served cumulatively upon the murder conviction, making a total effective sentence of 27 years. A minimum period of 22 years was fixed before Lou would become eligible for parole, By the way, that's in 2027. Now, out of this, real estate agents would have to review their guidelines when showing properties. Now, these guidelines would establish a number of sensible 
and easy to implement procedures such as ensuring procedures are in place when conducting individual tours of properties, such as maintaining regular phone contact with the office and establishing that the customer is genuine and limiting the amount of personal information that's made available about the agents. Now, it's all basic stuff, you'd think, but back in the day, attacks like this were just unheard of. Okay, so Laurel's been sadly missed by her family and friends. She was just doing her job when this human scum decided to act out his perverted sexual fantasy. From all the research I've done on this, He'd met up with Laurel several months before he lured her to the fake house inspection. I reckon he formed some sort of infatuation with her. As Remember he made comments that some real estate agent wanted to move in with him? But this was just in his grubby, grubby little mind. And then when he finally got her alone in that house, I reckon he put it to her that he was interested in her. When she knocked him back, the grubby little fuck... He got violent, attacked her, and ultimately, he took her life. Regardless of whether she would have accepted his offer or not, he was still going to act out this rape fantasy that day, and he was prepared to kill if required. Now, again, that's my opinion. But after being caught, he just had a bunch of half-truths and lies trying to lessen his involvement in her rape and murder. This grubby piece of scum hasn't shown any remorse for his actions and I really hope they don't let him out on parole in 2027. Last thing to say was at Laurel's funeral, there were around 300 people, some of them wearing St Kilda football jumpers. Now that was a team she was so passionate about all her life. She was celebrated as a loyal, honest, loving, trustworthy and helpful person who lived with her adult children, Samantha and John. So that's the end of this week's show. These perps really bring on the rage for their senseless, selfish acts. So first up, we've got the Patreon shoutouts and thanks to all my past, present and new patrons. Your financial support does make a huge difference as True Crime Island is commercial free for everybody. There's Renee Rodriguez. Thanks, Renee, so much. Brandon Boyle upped his pledge. Thanks, mate. And Tammy Church, much appreciated. Thank you all so much. If you want to become a patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Now, if you don't like that monthly sort of thing, you can do a donation as well if you like to PayPal. That's at donate.truecrimeisland.com. I also have merch at Threadless and a new Redbubble one now. So you go to the Redbubble website and search for True Crime Island. You can also support the show free of charge by rating and reviewing. And I love it when you share it with your friends and family, especially the new YouTube site. So use the hashtag BoomFuckLunger if you like in your social media. All the links including social media are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. Again, did I mention my YouTube channel? Okay, now we do have a promo this week. It's the True Crime Horror Story. It's a true crime podcast designed like an anthology horror movie. Each episode, your host JD Horror brings you his take on some of the most disturbing cases in history. 
highlighting both obscure and notorious incidents of real-life murder. Okay, that's at the end. So that's about it for tonight. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Bon fuckalunga. I am your host, J.D. Horror, and this is True Crime Horror Story, a true crime podcast designed like an anthology horror movie. It's definitely not for the faint of heart, and it's not played for laughs. Join us on January 30th, 2020, for the debut of Season 2. If you thought Season 1 was extreme, get ready, because you haven't heard anything yet. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Subscribe now wherever podcasts can be consumed and check out our website www.truecrimehorrorstory.com True Crime Horror Story Sometimes truth is more brutal than fiction